Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. So on this episode of the Badminton Podcast, we have Henry Vervoet. He's 44 years old, he's Dutch born, but he lived in Italy for many years. He has a university degree in research and he's trying to make more science out of badminton or put more sports science into badminton and he's had some mixed results in doing so. He's been a professional coach since 2006, having coached in Denmark, France, Switzerland, Belgium, Germany and a lot of the time in Italy as well. He has the highest European coaching degree, is a BWF level two tutor, a shuttle time expert, and he is part of the Badminton Europe pool of experts for giving coaching education. I like research, I like learning, I like studying, I like finding out what it's all about. Why does this happen and understanding stuff? And that I took also into badminton, why do we do this instead of that? That's what interests me. And as badminton is not very developed in that, it's very hard to find specific studies into badminton. There are some, and there are quite interesting, but a lot of studies from other hitting sports, mm. be it baseball, be it golf, be it tennis, are applicable to badminton. Also, physiology is very applicable to badminton. And yeah, we did that in badminton, but then I don't think it developed that much. We still do the same stuff we did 25 years ago, which yeah. world has changed mm-hmm. in research as well. Henry, welcome onto this episode of the Badminton Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So first of all, in that little description I gave of your the introduction, you talked about science into badminton, which is what we can talk about a little bit. But what are these mixed results you've been getting? Oh, that might already be a long answer. Yeah, well, mixed results is that, that in badminton we have a lot of customs, we have habits, stuff we tend to do without actually proof if it works or not. But whatever you feel comfortable with is what you'd like to do as a coach, as a player, and uh, sometimes to go outside of the comfort zone to do new stuff, which science research says could have positive effects can be frustrating because it's outside of your comfort zone so players don't do it voluntarily push back a bit and then if you're not all in into something you won't get results whatever you do mm-hmm. so that's that's yeah. the mixed results so some stuff they adapt to some they don't so you Great. always have to figure it out what works and it depends also on the personality you have in front of you mm-hmm. fantastic All right, but before we get into the the main stuff, let's hear more about 
how badminton became part, such a big part of your life and, and your current role now as the singles head coach of yeah. the Dutch national team. How did badminton come into your life? Well, both my parents played. I guess this is not an uncommon answer. And uh, those days, badminton was a big sport in the Netherlands, and I wasn't allowed to join the club before I was 10 years old. So before that, I did some swimming, but couldn't wait before I was 10 years old, so I could finally start. Then for the first years, I was just a hobby player, playing once a week, but enjoyed it a lot. And then when I was 15, I got my first real coach, and then I started to train more. And then, yeah, it became what I really like to do all the time, but it wasn't always possible to train. But if I would have had the opportunity, I would have done it. And then when I moved to Italy, when I was 24, I just played every day. And then, of course, you want to figure stuff out. So I went into coaching education as well and to know more about the sport. And that became my new passion. So yeah, the short version is that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in that period of time, when you got your first coach at, say, 15, and then you said in t- when you were 24, you moved to Italy. So that nine period nine-year period, how did you go with badminton? Were you starting to train more? Were you, what level were you trying to achieve? Like, what was your ambition behind badminton? Well, I just wanted to be as good as I could with the time I had, because since I wasn't wasn't the best, I won some regional championships and I played a decent level league here, just below the the highest level. Mm -hmm. And in those days, that was actually pretty okay level. Now I would say that it's gone down a bit, but I needed to study. So my main focus was on the study, but I tried to play a lot of sports, different sport, tennis, football, badminton, squash, just physical sports also. And yeah, badminton as much as I could. So yeah, the level went up. Then, then I got invited to some of the year final tournaments in the Netherlands in singles and doubles. And then yeah, that was 23, 24. And then I quit in the Netherlands, but if I would look back now, it was terrible. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, it was just running and hitting as hard as I could. And oh, okay. Running around blindly because <laughs> I didn't have notion. We did multi-feeding and then I just said to my colleague here in the hall, yeah, I was that age, right? we just did multi-feeding twice a week until you were completely gone. Mm-hmm. And then you played some matches while you couldn't move anymore and that was great fun and uh, then you were happy. Not only that, but, but mainly, so yeah. 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 So when we said before that you have a university degree in research, when you decided to go into study, was that revolved around your love for badminton or sport or was it no, taking it, a different it, path? It, it was really different because I did research, but in like not a better study, but in contemporary history, you studied propaganda, Oh wow! which uh, since then, since I left it has become like a major field because with all social media and also this current crisis all around the world and influencing people's opinions. And that was actually my my speciality, what some countries do to influence public opinions in countries from who they want something. That was interesting, but mm. in those days, it was a lot of work in archives and I had to learn some languages, which it's nice, but it did cost a lot of time. And I was like, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. But I liked research. I like learning. I like studying. I like mm-hmm. finding out what it's all about. Why does this happen? And, and understanding stuff. And that I took also into badminton. Why do we do this instead of that? That's what interests me. And as badminton is not very developed in that, it's very hard to find specific studies into badminton. There are some, and there are quite interesting, but a lot of studies from other hitting sports, mm. be it baseball, be it golf, be it tennis, are applicable to badminton. Also, physiology is very applicable to badminton. And yeah, 
we did that in badminton, but then I don't think it developed that much. We still do the same stuff we did 25 years ago, which yeah. world has changed mm-hmm. in research as well. Oh, wow. That's really interesting about the propaganda studies. I've actually never heard of anyone studying that before. I don't even know if it's available in Australia. I'm sure it is, but I just don't know. But I guess that you talk about influence and, and how to maybe yeah, get people to think the way you want them to think. How has that affected your coaching? Because as a coach, you also want to influence in a way that's beneficial for the player. And has there been something that you've learned in your studies in propaganda that's helped you maybe get a point across or help someone to understand something that maybe they were a bit closed to listening to before? Good question. Ooh, I might tend to answer that it might be the other way around, that having that knowledge gives me some frustration due to people not getting the total picture because propaganda is about you have stuff that happens which is a story in itself but that's kind of the truth Mm -hmm. but everybody who is talking about it has his own or her own angle so you have commission or omission commission is i add some stuff which makes the emotional reaction you get on the stuff different Mm -hmm. omission you take it away like if i tell you oh, he he hit another person, you would think, oh, that's bad. But I might have taken away after the other one hit him eight times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's changing a lot. And of course, that happens in our sport. I don't like to influence my players into doing something. But propaganda is a little bit like publicity. It's tricking you to do stuff. And yeah, I prefer to educate them to use their own brain and be aware of this stuff happening because it's actually... If you become really good, what we're here for at that center, you have to deal with media, you have to deal with sponsors' expectations, and everybody has his own angle. You, you actually have to be aware of people taking information away, adding some stuff, sugarcoating mm. it, all that stuff, so you can find your own path. If you're not aware of that, then you might struggle. So that's, I try to teach that to become independent adults who, who can make their own decisions. But into convincing them, I don't think I have had much success from my research and study. <laughs> okay, that's really interesting in terms of how how you see propaganda working. If we go a little bit just off badminton and you <laughs> you talk, we talk about propaganda. And to me, look, I'm not good at history at all. I think in Australia, a little bit we're a little bit isolated from a lot of of that stuff because we were involved, but sometimes not that heavily involved as maybe European countries, etc. But as soon as I think of that, I think about Germany and the World War Two, etc. But this is like completely off badminton. But in terms of propaganda, are there any certain elements of propaganda that make it work? Is it kind of fear? Is it fear driving? Is it we always talk about pain and pleasure, right? And moving away from pain towards pleasure, and that's how you can influence. But yeah, what? what yeah, how does propaganda work? In it, it actually, it's based on the same psychological principles that publicity and marketing is is using. I mean, if you see publicity, for example, for medicines, it's uh, you have this and this and this, then you might need that. But we're at a point nowadays that uh, that they say, do you wake up every morning and there's light outside? And then people say, oh, I have that. I need something. I'm sick. I need something. And and that's what propaganda kind of does. It, for example, you want to justify why you're doing some stuff. So you take away the stuff that doesn't make you look good. So if you have a new medicine, you will not say that out of the test results, uh, be aware 25 persons every 100 yeah. dies trying this. Yeah. You don't say that. And, and But yeah, you still want to sell your product. And yeah, that's 
propaganda, publicity, marketing, it's all very close. You take away information which should be needed to have mm -hmm. a complete picture and make a conscious decision. And by taking it away or adding stuff which is not completely true or there, you, you completely change people's minds because people make emotional decisions. Mm -hmm. The brain can process stuff, but the worth we give to stuff decides the outcome. If I had this talk with a player that I said, yeah, but if you want to go to talk with a specialist, a psychologist, if you already have a fixed idea, you will not listen. Mm. Because if your heart says like, I prefer to continue playing badminton. And the psychologist says, yes, listen, well, you're not number one of Europe. Yeah, you could at school. Maybe it's better you go study. That's not the message you want to hear. So it's an emotional decision. And what propaganda does is, yeah, try to, oh, we are threatened as a nation. Uh, they do bad things to us because they raped our women or whatever. You get an emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, you take away some stuff or you add some stuff. Oh, that country has always been ours historically. So it's our stuff. We need to get that. Otherwise, they're stealing from us. That's, and people, people like to be in, a, they have a cultural identity. Like we belong to this group. We identify with yeah. specific groups of the badminton community. We identify with badminton, yeah. even though all persons in that community are completely different. Mm. Uh, different professions, different interests, different lifestyle, everything. But because you identify, we have something you want to defend. And that's what propaganda wants to do. Influence public opinion. So. Either you attain something or you get people behind. And that's very interesting, but it's also, yeah, it can be depressing mm. uh, if you get my meaning. Because, yeah, the world is, in that sense, it's not a very, really nice place. Yeah, that's true. Because everything you're saying is you see it in everyday life. And yeah. I guess the word propaganda to me has a negative connotation immediately. But if so, you said marketing or publicity, then it is different and that it could be viewed as positively. And then what you said before is, when you add all things up and everyone that's telling you certain things from their perspectives, then what is actually pure? What is, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like what, what is right, what is wrong? It gets uh, a bit blurry, right? Uh, science is based upon that something is, uh, one plus one is two. That's kind of a fact that you can work around. But yeah, with human beings, that's very hard. And when I did this in the end of the 1990s and beginning of the 2000s, the world was a different place. Nowadays, mm. I see my players who have enormous amounts of information that are trying to influence their thinking and influence what they should do. Because if you hear something enough, you think that is normal. Yeah. Years ago, it was normal to train hard and work hard because everybody did that. Mm -hmm. Now you have so many distractions, so many other options that it's, it's very hard for everybody to make correct decisions if you want to be a high-level athlete. And that's, that's not easy. Yeah. yeah. And that's what you have Facebook, all those Instagram, it's all based on how they can influence your brain and earn more money. That's yeah. the whole thing in the end. But yeah, that's really off topic actually, but it's, it's how our brain works and mm -hmm. how our brain works. We come back to badminton because yeah, our brain works on court as well. And I think that's often one of the most important things because if your brain works well, you have goals, you train better, you can deal with difficult situations, you're mentally flexible. Mm -hmm. So you can accept stuff that doesn't go your way and adapt to it and go further. And that's something brain should learn to do. But it's not really what polit politics wants to do. It's not really what marketing and publicity really wants to do because independent thinking people are hard to influence. 
Um, that's why in big regimes, they always got killed off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's exactly what we want to have a high level athlete. You want somebody when it's 1919 and there are 2000 people screaming against you in a hall, you want them independently to deal with it and make the correct decision. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, we want the opposite from what the world wants, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. As badminton coaches. As a badminton coach, yeah. If we want to sell a product, we want yeah, somebody else. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit different. Yeah, that's very true. And then we were talking a little bit about research before and how you were talking about, yeah, there's there's not that much research in badminton and maybe there's more for tennis or, or golf or baseball or maybe more the, the mainstream sports that have a bit more, I guess, I don't know, probably not history because badminton has such a rich history but in terms of badminton being a little bit behind in terms of these research and, and maybe implementation of sports science or analytics like you're talking about it's also money i think if there's money in it there's more research in it i mean i know you guys had uh, carry from clutch on a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and we are experimented with it as well and all those applications artificial intelligence but also video analysis direct video analysis it comes from golf or baseball or mm. other sports because there's money people want to even a hobby player wants to correct his swing yeah so there's money in it so there's research done how can we fix this how does your body move there is some in badminton of course there is but there's not a big market for applications there's not a big market for for that kind of stuff and we are still a federation controlled sport and that's not where the money is Mm. so that makes that research to do it in badminton it's not very profitable so then it might not get done (laughs) yeah unless you have a certain position within a university or something and you can do it so there's some very interesting research into badminton but it's not widely known it's not connected directly with coaching education so it's in a world on itself and it doesn't really trickle down into the sport and that's a shame the good thing is now with video analysis that that part is really growing, but the whole science part is yeah, struggling in my opinion. I mean, in American football, not my favorite sport, but they measure stuff, your impulse control, it's called in your brain. If you can check your impulse, you might be better suited as a defender because otherwise you react on feints from an attacker and you go the wrong way, you can't block him anymore. Whereas a running back, Mm-hmm. needs to have almost no impulse control. He just needs to like feel that there is a gap and start sprinting into it so the quarterback can pass the ball there. If you translate that to badminton and you would measure it, you would say that, for example, in a doubles, the front court player needs to have almost no impulse control. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the back court player would need to be somebody a bit more impulse controlled, mm-hmm. if you get my drift. Yeah. Well, we don't have enough players to test that, but Asian countries would have enough players to test that. So I don't know if they do, but that would be a good thing to, for them to test and see, okay, he is more directed to the front of the court, he's more directed to this. And also tactics-wise, if you're in a single and you're not, you don't have impulse control, you will be more like an instinctive player and you'll have more difficulty handling a game plan because that's how you work, how your brain works. Mm. And if you're more impulse controlled, sometimes you see it with girls, they want to know A, B, C, they want to have complete plans, that gives them security and they can perform that really well when something unexpected happens happens they they might struggle to adapt to it because that's their personality but that's research done in other sports which is completely usable translatable translatable, Mm. but we don't know about it so we don't measure it we don't test it we don't behave on it actually and that's that's sometimes a pity because it could make our sport better 
How did they test this impulse control thing? Yeah, it's it's science company in the States because there's money yeah, in the, yeah. <laughs> even university sports over there. Mm-hmm. And they have some testing protocols where they, they measure your reactions on flashes of your eyes, I think, or something. I don't know exactly how the procedure is, but they do measure it. And some people can not react on it. They can wait for like a millisecond longer to really adjust the situation. And others go on impulse. And that's... For example, rugby, but even in, you have to scramble where you're, but we have that in badminton as well. You have ticks, you have tells, like in poker. And intuitive players can just go 100% for a shot sometimes because they recognize something in what's happening. Yeah, when he moves his hand two times, he's always passing it to the right side, for example, in American football. Yeah. And then you just anticipate. Well, in badminton, we, we have a lot of stuff, exercises to learn to anticipate, learn to see. And you can do that even by a computer because you don't need to do it on court, research says. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting to measure this stuff, to work with it, to see if you can adapt to the player you have in front. Because if a player should do stuff which is against his nature, it's really hard to learn. Yeah. If you're an intuitive player and you have to work with like a whole lot of information, you feel... yeah boxed in the other way around if you're like boxed in you can't expect them to read some stuff they need to be more structured and you have people who are in the middle <laughs> yeah yeah that's the fixed mindset the growth mindset you need a bit of both ideally now just a quick word from our sponsors the badminton podcast is brought to you by volant volant was first born out of our frustration with the confusing bright and unsightly clothes and equipment that we saw in the badminton world. But now it's so much more than that. Our mission is to accelerate the growth of badminton by providing players with products that enhance their love for the sport. All in all, it's high quality gear that makes you look and feel great on and off the court. So make sure you check us out at volantbadminton.com and follow us on our socials at Volant Badminton. That's really interesting because I'm just trying to think about players who have these certain traits. And I would just say as a generalization, I think that generally in Asia, a lot of them are just more instinctive, right? Yes, Is that what you would yes, think? Yes, yes. I would think mm. in a lot of stuff they're instinctive. They know it's working. They might not even explain why or can't put it into words. They're just... No. Able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you look at some of the Indonesians, they, they demand doubles, they play everything flat, but they play against the racket if they can. So if the racket's on the right side of a the player, then if they're in a flat exchange, they try to hit it on the other shoulder, just instinctively. And we Europeans, some are good in it because they study it and they know it and stuff, but most struggle to do that automatically. They need to be told, hey, listen, if you see a racket on the right side, yeah. you have to hit it to the left side mm-hmm. and train on it, and then they can do it. But Asians, they have done it so many times, they just know if I hit it like that, that's a problem. I have yeah. to hit it there. And it goes ABC. Mm. And it can be good, but if you look to like, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but our Taiwanese singles player, Chu Chen Chen. Yeah. Yeah, well, in my opinion, he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. <laughs> and Whoever he plays, he does the same thing. Yep. And Agree. that's why he's got a huge potential. And you can't say there's nothing coming out because he's in the top five for so yeah, many yeah, years, yeah. but he's a great player. But if he would have had a stronger tactical, mental game, he could have been dominating. Mm. But he didn't. So yeah. 
that's an interesting topic that Henry and I, my normal co-host, yeah. has. We did a, a video on it actually. Should Cho Tianchen have a coach? And we did some <laughs> research about why he doesn't. And one of the things he said was that he doesn't like not not that he doesn't like to listen, but he can't really implement a game plan that doesn't come from himself because he doesn't believe it. So he has to come up with the game plan himself because he can't accept it or he doesn't feel trust or, or whatever that might be. And yeah, yeah. Victoria Cow is more that, that support role rather than telling him what to do. So I guess that's another facet of personality, right? The growth mindset or fixed mindset. Yes, yes. I mean, if that works for him, that might be fine. But then again, it's outside of his comfort zone. So that's probably what he doesn't like to do. Mm. If you look at him, I don't think he struggles with physical training. <laughs> not at all. That not, might be an issue for other people, but yep. uh, for myself, for example. But yeah, that's that part is, is not his comfort zone. And if you want to be the best, uh, look at Victor Axelsen. I yep. think there's not a facet of badminton he doesn't try to improve in. On court, off court, that makes that you get the best out of yourself. And many Asians are extremely good players, but did they get the best out of themselves? Maybe, maybe not. Some will, some won't. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Chu got the best out of himself, but that's my opinion. Yeah. And yeah. I think his game plan is kind of the same against everyone. Everyone. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's just hitting strokes for me and that's fine. I mean, he did great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish I could. Mm. Just going back to the, because I, I find it really fascinating to try to tap into what your personality is that, what were the words you use? You said instinctive and... You can be intuitive and intuitive can be more and reasoned and fixed or and, reasoned yeah, fixed or, and growth and yeah, ideally you have a bit of both. Mm -hmm. But if we had some listeners on the podcast here that look, we definitely have listeners who are professional players, professional coaches, but also club level, social level, but they potentially want to know who they could partner well with or what's good for them in a game situation. Should they be trying to study the night before is that their personality would you have any tips as to how someone could identify themselves as either that instinctive player or that that fixed kind of needs a game planned stable person yes i think it's important to get to know the players you're coaching if you're a coach as an athlete i hope you know yourself a little bit if not then you have found already something to work on if you want to get the best out of yourself has sometimes to step back from yourself and actually listen to your thoughts, listen to your feelings. And that might help a lot. Yeah, as for coaches on, on maybe not a professional high level, it's if you look at single players, it's quite easy to figure them out if you talk with them. If you have people who want to know the reason behind everything, then you have one type. Yeah. If you have the, the one that you, you teach them something new and two minutes later you see them trying it out in a game, that's the more the, the instinctive, the intuitive player who just likes to try and learn by playing. Mm -hmm. And the other one, before they commit to learning something, first needs to really be sure that it's a good idea to do that. And it's a generalization. And, and some people are somewhere in the middle. Mm. But it is easy to know if you know the players. So if you see them once a month, it might be hard. <laughs> yeah. If you see them once a week, I think you figure it out after a while. And then you can adapt how you coach them. Yeah. Do you think that in the coaching itself, that the coach or the person training, do you think that they should work more on the opposite side? So let's say that you've got an instinctive player. Do you think that we should just keep harnessing and try to strengthen that kind of instinctivity, if that's a word? Or do you think that person, we should try to teach them a bit of the other side? Or do you think we're just banging our heads against the wall if we try to do the opposite? 
Oh, yeah, it depends. Then then you go back. Uh, if if they have a fixed mindset and they're like a reasoned player, then you might struggle. Then it's probably best to invest a lot of time in studying, having mm. having explained everything, etc. If you have a mix between somebody who has a growth mindset and but is like really liking game plan, then you can become more intuitively. But intuition is actually also sometimes learned. If it's a good if it's a good choice. You might have figured out one way or another that is a good choice to make. So if you put them into game-like exercises with conditions, with all those kind of tactical exercises, then they might figure out for themselves that it's working. And then they become able without mm. actually really thinking about it, but they still learned. How people learn is very interesting. But yeah, that makes badminton coaching extremely difficult because you need to know a lot about a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really hard. Yeah. They need to be a good actor to convince them that you're treating person A differently than person B, but invest the same time, invest that, that's not easy. Yeah, especially when one is asking for yeah, every single breakdown and the other one, because I, I know players that really enjoy, like if you're doing a playing a match or doing a routine that the coach will just stop the point and between points and go on court and say this, this, and this. And I know people that absolutely hate it and they're like, just let me play, let me play. Which I guess that's another good telltale sign to say what kind of player it is, right? Yeah, but I would say it's it's always worth the effort to... I mean, you should work on your strengths, but it's important to also have a look at the other side. Mm-hmm. Is there something for me which makes me better? That that always helps. And if you, you always want to learn, so you learn from the other side as well. And if you're lucky, you have already instinctively everything you can think and you can be instinctive, that's great. But most players aren't. And then when we talk, say, about the Asian and Europeans potentially as a generalization being a little bit more different in terms of the way they play or that instinctivity, in terms of the development of an Asian player or of a European player, how do you feel that, because of course you're going to speak from a European background, but how do you feel from your perspective is the best way for a European player to get the most out of themselves as a generalization compared to an Asian player, because we've got, so I'm of course, I'm Malaysian, Chinese in background, but I live in Australia. So we're more in a Western country where the training style is different than from Asia itself. But if you look at say Canada or US, there are lots of say Asian backgrounded players who are playing for a country that's not Asian in origin, I guess. So in terms of that balance, do you think that it's more a a heritage thing or do you think it's more of a where you grew up and where you learned to play? Like, do you think that there's a difference in the ethnicity of the person and where they actually learned to play badminton in terms of instinctivity and being more fixed? Good question. I think that's cultural identity. I think Asian players are much more, not from Asia, but also the people you're talking about, the Canadian players. Yeah. Yeah. They have much more respect for older people, a coaching role, so they tend to listen more and mm-hmm. don't object and just do what they're told. And if you have a coach who knows his stuff, then it's actually worth the while listening yeah. and yeah. doing what you're told. In Italy, I had for eight months uh, Lo Ying, who was the world number one in ladies' doubles. And one of the first things she had translated to me by her boyfriend was, oh, there's no respect for coaches in Europe. I said, it's actually not that bad over here. <laughs> uh, but what she meant to say is that what she saw is completely unthinkable in Asia, whereas what they do in Asia is completely unthinkable in Europe. Mm -hmm. But I think 
the truth is actually <laughs> it's an open door but it's somewhere in the middle because if we look at some successful players young players in europe right now they have kind of a not completely free background all the time look at the popov brothers they're coached by the father i've known them since they're quite young they're a badminton family they have a great passion but it's also strict sometimes and the father knows them better than any coach could but it's also harder to tell your father like hey listen uh, I don't want to do this or listen, go to uh, that place. You can't do that because you see the same person at home. So you have to go push yourself that extra 5% where other players in Europe most of the time don't want to go because we live in a comfortable society. We love badminton if we play badminton. We do it with passion, fun. And there are not that many though that can push on when it really hurts, push on when it's uncomfortable, push on when it's yeah not what we like to do when we can, can't play our favorite shots and they have a different background so they can actually do that quite well and they're really successful and most europeans have their, their main passion is the transfer of blame yeah i couldn't win referee lights shoes strings coach this coach that uh, my girlfriend called you last whatever it doesn't matter i really don't care what excuses if you're one-on-one -on, -one on court or two against two it doesn't matter, get better. If you don't win, get better. Try to win. If there's no possibility that you ever win, get as close as you can. That's a high level sports mindset. But we like to first give the blame to somebody else. Then we complain about it to get empathy from other people who go, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, the shuttles, yeah, it was really hard to get those in. Oh, the lights, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the referees here are terrible. All that so you feel comfortable. And then if somebody would say, yeah, listen, but the shuttle was as fast for him as it was for you, then you start to defend. Yeah, it's no, but it's not, and they are used to play. It's all counterproductive to, because we're not used in Europe to be uncomfortable. And I think Asians are still used to be uncomfortable. They come sometimes from poverty. They have really strict rules sometimes mm -hmm. in these big centers. It's a really hard life. So they deal with adversity much more. We walk away from it. So... Not everybody, it's a generalization, yeah, 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 but yeah. that means that overall, when it's the money time, it's 15, 15, 18, 18, Asians sometimes have a little bit more. They are willing longer to stay in it. There are some Europeans players who can do that, but yes, it's very hard for Europeans because there's so many other comfortable options. We don't, in Asia, you can still be famous, rich and stuff with badminton. In Europe, it's possible, but it's really hard. So it's also different. But yeah, I, I think Europeans could learn something from Asian. And I think, for what I know, that Asian could learn something from Europe. And that will bring our sports to a higher level. And that's mm -hmm. fun for everybody. <laughs> yeah. So when you talk about maybe the Asian coaching or yeah, the, the style being maybe a bit more strict or directive where there's not as much choice given to the player, they have to do it. And if they get told to do 100 sprints, then they, they have to do it or they, otherwise they get kicked out or, or something like that, right? How do you think it helps on court in a match? So you talked about 18 or 19 or and they've put that at adversity, but how else do you think it really helps them on court to be... Good habits. Yeah, good habits. I think that, of course, if you're forced to do something a lot of times, be it even humble stuff like sorting out shuttles, which are bad, which are good, or cleaning yeah. the hall. And I know this, this Chinese girl, she was best in the world. When she was with us, she was the first one doing some stuff without anybody telling her because she has been taught that's what you do, mm. that's what you do, that's what you do. And if you do it enough, it becomes a habit, it becomes a natural thing you do. So when it's 
really tight in the match, you have a lot of good habits. Just, I just do this, I just do this, I can do this, I can do that. That helps. Of course, the Europeans and even other people from the world who, who have this as well, but that makes a big difference. If you have a lot of good habits, <laughs> that makes everything more easy. If you have the habits to train hard and mentally prepare for training, that's a good habit. If you organize all your material, that's a good habit. If you organize your, your lifestyle, your sleeping, your diet, that's a good habit. Then it becomes automatically, if every time you walk past a McDonald's, you have to think, oh, that's nice. Oh, I would like to eat that. Ah, this time I give myself an excuse why I can do it because it's the second birthday of this or this, so I can eat McDonald's. So yeah, that's a bad habit. If it's just automatically that you walk by, they have a good habit that helps you. A lot of mm. good habits help you to become your best self. And Asian coaches are not all the same. I've met a few, some are very strict, some are actually even quite loose. Mm. It's just a training style that might be different. It's longer and sometimes less intensity and we do it differently. And yeah, I think sometimes it's good to do both, but as long as you have an idea behind it. If you do 45 minutes attack defense with no quality, yeah, you hit a lot of shuttles, that's fine, but it's not usable in a match. Mm -hmm. But if you would do 45 minutes of high intensity, but with a lot of breaks, that's a match. Mm -hmm. So that's a good way to train for a match. So it depends how they do it. And do you find that a lot of the time, because in general that you of course have really hard sessions like multi-shuttle sessions and really hard physical sessions, are usually quite a bit shorter still than say the Asian trainings that they go on court for three hours, four hours in one session and do that twice a day. Do you feel that sometimes the fit, overall fitness is lacking in Europeans in some of the longer, longer matches because of that? I know because I guess yeah. you're trying to always work with the ratios of work and rest that is as match-like as possible in your training to make your training specific. But do you feel that sometimes being too specific can sometimes be a hindrance for, say, something in a tournament that comes up that's not expected? Yes, of course. That's an interesting discussion. It depends on the player. If you're a top player, you play one match a day. That's max one, one and a half hours. If yep. you play singles, if you play ladies doubles, I would <laughs> Two <hours>. suggest <laughs> to work some other stuff. But if you play challenge tournaments and you're a guy getting into qualifications, yeah. then you might need to play three good matches in one day and be able to perform the next day if you come through. Mm -hmm. So you need to have a really high basic fitness. And yeah, if you just copy from what the best players in Europe are doing, maybe one really hard session of one half hour, then skills in the afternoon or whatever, yeah, that's fine if you play one match. Mm. If you need to play three matches a day, then it might not be the ideal thing to do. So, so you, you need to adapt. Yeah, it's like another layer of specificity, isn't it? Yeah. So it's like specificity of the sport in general, and then there's another layer as to, hey, where are you and what is your matches like in a day? And then making it specific to that as well. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Really... And, and it depends on the, the speciality you play. Mm -hmm. I mean, and yeah, latest doubles, you see some extraordinarily long matches now that either you're fit or you won't win. And that's why you see the, the Strava sisters who yeah. have a very tough training regime. They can do this. Mm. But I think most European ladies doubles, and without wanting to offend anybody, but I think after one hour and 21 minutes, their level has severely dropped. Yeah. And when they play against the Stuevas, they don't know how to score within Europe. And so they get frustrated and give up. And that's the same thing we talked about before, that some Europeans, they might actually be fit physically to do it. But 
however fit you are, sometimes a match hurts. <laughs> mm. <laughs> a lo- really long rally hurts everybody. It doesn't yeah, matter yeah. how fit you are. Yeah. And it's also the mental toughness. And I, I think that you learn that maybe more in Asia as a habit because you feel pain in your body much more often also yeah. because it's almost a selection procedure there so so yeah yeah well we have had a pretty long discussion so far and i'm sure we could just keep talking as we have been this week and talk for hours and hours but we will have to start wrapping up here so in terms of your coaching experience like the many years of coaching you've had um the bwf tutor level two and also like the work that you do with badminton europe etc what would you say if there was say this is going to be a really broad question that you're probably going to hate me for but if if you're going to say what's something that you see a common kind of trend in say the coaches or the players out there that you commonly have to address it or you're commonly or you get commonly asked about a certain thing is there anything in particular any themes that come through quite oftenly well it's a funny question. There's two things spring to mind. Mm-hmm. One is with a lot of coaches who are not really good, you didn't used to be good players. The only question you always get is how do you hit a backhand clear? Okay. Uh, that's, that's like the general question. Yeah, that's not that difficult, but still, yeah, overall, I'm grateful that I've coached on every level, more or less, because you learn something everywhere. Mm-hmm. I think that what I what I see now is that coaches tend to know less nowadays than they did before. Not the high level coaches, they know a lot, but like basic level. I mean, BWF one and two, that's a good standardization of, of some basic stuff and there is something in it. But in my feeling, there used to be a more specific information about also techniques, how you fix stuff. Now there might be two fixes for a spin shot, but there might be 13 possible things you need to look yeah. into and that's tough. You don't learn it in books. You need to travel. You need to talk with other coaches, other players, uh, walk around. Uh, but that sh- could be that that information, people are looking for it, but it's really hard to find. We have some of the YouTube channels now and yeah. it goes into some stuff, but still it's all, yeah, it's not really specific. And even going into grips and how you teach children the stuff nowadays, because <laughs> they're different children nowadays than they used to be many years ago. Mm. You need to teach them differently, also motorically differently, but it hasn't really gone down yet into coach education, into what coaches do. I think shuttle time is a very good first step. They should make a shuttle time plus maybe, but yeah, it's uh, it's really important to have good coaches, but even coaches have less time. You're your coach yourself, but it's not your main job, is it? Mm, yeah, No. True. So yeah, it's, it's really, really, really hard to do everything good. And the level is going up, but the level of the coaches on the grassroots level is worrying me a little bit overall in Europe. I don't know how it's in Asia, but mm. in Europe, it's slightly worrying. In one way, we have more structure with the BWF courses, which is good. In the other way, they know less, they have less time, they invest less of their own time into it. And if you want to be really good in something, it's going to cost time mm. for players, for coaches. I don't know if that answered your question because I might go <laughs> meandering a bit like a river, but yeah. No, that's good. I think the discussion has been really useful for for me just to get a different perspective and your our conversations are always interesting. You always come with a different perspective. So I really appreciate that. And I, I think all the listeners will really appreciate that there are some subtle differences that you might instinctively, we've used that word a lot, instinctively know, but you've actually put it out in the open and, and talked about it, which is really good because sometimes we don't 
we don't notice it. We know it's there, but we don't notice it. And if we don't notice it, then we can't act on it. And then if that happens, then we are able to apply the knowledge that we actually know. So for all the listeners out there, I hope that you have enjoyed this episode because there's heaps of heaps of wisdom here, heaps of knowledge here passed on if you're a player or a coach or even a fan or someone who just likes sports in general because a lot of it applies in sports but in life as well. So Henry, I just want to say thank you so much from all the listeners and myself and Henry who's not here but the Badminton Podcast for spending the time to inform us with all of your knowledge today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I hope it's been interesting and it would be nice to meet my namesake Henry, one oh, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. nice to hear my name every yeah. time on your podcast. But, but his name is spelled with a Y, not yes, a Y. Yes, it's so. true. It's, it's different, but it's, so, it's close. It's close enough. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast, and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback, or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.